I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. This is a CBC podcast. Recording. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, I'm calling from Canada. Could I ask you to do me a favor with that telephone? Go on. I'm collecting the sounds all around London. So would you just hold the phone up in the air so I can record the sound at that payphone location? Okay. Right, what exactly is the location? Uh, Leicester Square. All right, just hold it up in the air, would you? All right. Thank you. Okay. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed with a special program dedicated to the life and work of a master documentary maker, Chris Brooks. Chris Brooks lived and worked in a part of St. John's, Newfoundland called The Battery, and in fact called his own audio production company, Battery Radio. This documentary by David Zane Myrowitz and Malgajata Zerve features excerpts from Chris's documentary work over the years, as well as recollections by those who knew and worked with him. I love the outer battery. And it is like being in a, an outport, which is what they call the small villages, the fishing villages in Newfoundland. This is Christina Smith, Chris's wife, musician. That's her you hear playing the fiddle. There's no way that anything that happens here is of any great consequence in the world. Recording. Half past seven in the morning. Once upon a time. Wake up. Smell of wood smoke wafting through the bedroom window. Once upon a time. It's spring 2023. We're looking out at the same scene from a window lower down the battery cliff. From Chris and Christina's house, we watch seagulls nesting on the twine store opposite. Nice day today. I'm David. Beautiful. Okay. I'm Florence. Hello. Hi, David. Hello, Florence. Hello. Come on in. Florence, pretty sweet apple. One of only 15 year-round locals living here in the outer battery. A tangle of narrow waterfront streets, uphill and down, for the length of a single kilometer. And there's five batteries. Outer, top, middle, east middle... And lower. I'm amazed that this tiny kilometer can be Chris's microcosm, from which he projects himself out into the great world beyond. Chris was a fighter for the battery. Look out. A crab boat steaming through the narrows into St. John's Harbor. Seven ducks paddling out from the near shore. Soft purr of noises from the other end of the harbor. The city waking. And each battery... You say, oh, you're from the outer battery. You're a Protestant. Your top battery, you could be united and Catholic, but mostly Catholic. Lower battery was all Catholic. That was bought over from the old country, no doubt about it. 
they say that there's three kinds of wind in Newfoundland. There's the, the gale, the living gale, and the lard living gale. And it just never blows any less than that. Every time I saw him with a microphone outside, there was a wind filter on it. Our pilgrimage to St. John's was long in the planning. Chris and Christina were scheduled to fly to our place in Avignon. Then COVID intervened. But now we're finally here three years later, shivering in the living gale in the month of May. The sea is very difficult, and Newfoundlanders have made their living on the sea forever. And uh, there have been so many lives lost at sea, um, so many shipwrecks, so many fishermen lost. Now, if we're talking and we're telling a Newfie joke or a Newfie song or something like this, fun. But if I'm out, especially in Ontario, they said, oh, another Newfie up here. I don't like that. But that's the way they are. Lubo Pausen, Zagreb, Croatia. Dear Lubo, remember me? We met two years ago at that European media conference. I'm writing now because I'm working on a television program about this place I live in. We're a province of Canada nowadays, but we used to be our own country, a nation. In your nation, the one that used to be called Yugoslavia, you see those words close up. Nation, nationhood, nationalism. And maybe from close up, they're less romantic and more dangerous than they are in my dictionary. And I wonder how you'd see my search for my nation, Newfoundland. Was Newfoundland a real nation? Is it still? Or is it just a notion people entertain when they've had one too many beers? Newfoundland is not important, but it's interesting. And I think the same is true of St. John's Lake. There's no way that, in the great scheme of things, anything that happens here is of any great consequence in the world. We're sitting in his St. John's garden with John Doyle, filmmaker. The core flaw of the culture really is what's known as the good enough fallacy. You'll hear that phrase quite. It's good enough. It's good enough. I mean, the weather's terrible. You wouldn't even want to live here. The, you know, everything people did for years was difficult, and it's still difficult. But it's good enough. So at the same time, that philosophy also brings us down. We accept things that are good enough. So we're very poorly governed and have been very poorly governed for a very long time. But we move out in the summertime. They would call us uh, townies when we come out in the summer. <laughs> When we go back in and the quarter mile road, they call us battery bombs. Not battery, battery. Because we always call it the battery, not the battery, right? You want batteries, do you call it batteries? Oh, batteries. It's called a twine store. Twine meaning nets, meaning cod traps, meaning salmon nets, meaning trawl tubs and stuff. And store meaning storage. So this is what this building was, where they stored their... uh, There would have been all bins here, and this is where they would have stored all their... Gear. Other gear, exactly. Recording. Seagulls preening on the roof of the small shed by the wharf, the one with the sign announcing it as Jack Wells's Twine Store. Of course, this is the romantic view. You could just as well describe it as another ordinary day in an insignificant neighborhood, in an insignificant small city, on an insignificant island off the east coast of Canada, an insignificant nation. Pop out and just have a little look. There's a, Nobody is fishing crab because there's not enough money. The fishermen are only being offered $2 a pound for the crab and it's not worth going out. So all the crab boats are, are tied up and the, the pots are on the shore and the fish plant workers can't work and so it's, it's a mess. Here's an email from Chris on March 13th. 
Looks like loads of icebergs sailing down the coast this spring. Hope they don't melt before you arrive. We had a lovely iceberg here, a great big iceberg, and then he kind of broke off in the center. He was a different shape, like. Today, we lost one piece of him. He just crashed to the ocean today. So yeah, small pieces of ice floating around the harbor today. Yeah, that's fairyland, Newfoundland. Chris had all these wonderful stories and they weren't recorded. Like the one about the queen. And she did come here and she went visited uh, Purity Factories and uh, Purity Factories had just had a strike. The queen finally came up to this one lady who was making the jam jam cookies or something like that and said, and what exactly is it you are making here? The girl said, 7.50 an hour. <laughs> I was thinking uh, I should give you a tour of our house because the house says a lot about Chris's personality. So, yeah, so anyway, this is um, Chris's domain. It's kind of like living inside his brain. Whoops. This terrific line, like living inside his brain, is covered by a microphone blip. Should we just cut it as most radio makers would or keep it in, as Chris might do? The house, he designed the house. It's built on the side of a cliff. It's a little bit like a ship in here or a boat. Our plan is to create a feature together with Chris, chasing him around every corner of the battery, recording him on the go. This is where the avalanche came down. There's a huge cliff up behind with all kinds of striations. There's one of our chickens. Chook, 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 chook. The snow came down through this little crevice, or big crevice down through here, and buried the chicken coop, and it burst through the window, so there was three feet of snow in the house. Chook, 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 chook. It's time for them to come in now. They'll, they'll be coming in to roost. Chook, 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 chook. Um, this is a, a bunch of family photos. This is uh, Chris's parents, Lewis and Phyllis. She was um, taller than he was. most wonderful person that ever walked down a gangplank. And then at the end of the war, there was this great celebration in the house that Lewis and Phyllis, and, it, and he was called Bobby then, would be coming home. Barbara Ryan is Chris's aunt. Bobby is the Robert in Christopher Robert Brooks. And we went down to the harbour, and the ship arrived... And people came down the gangplank, and there was this very sophisticated, exotic woman in a hat and high heels and stockings, which were really special. I mean, we'd been years with rationing and wartime, and silk stockings were the ultimate in luxury in those days. She was blonde, and she was tall, and she was elegant. And I just fell in love. I thought this was just the most wonderful person that ever walked down a gangplank. Recording. It's always like this. Sooner or later, my mother comes into it. Why are the 
stars always winking and blinking above What makes a fella start thinking of falling in love? It's not the season, the reason is plain as a moon It's just Elmer's tune Once upon a time, there was a woman who lived in London, and her name was Phyllis Elmer, but her real name was Elsie. I've set out a series of her photographs here on the table in front of me, like playing cards in a hand of poker. Is this a royal straight flush or an ordinary straight-faced bluff? There's the young flapper posed in front of a trompe backdrop. The 70-year-old standing with her husband by a fireplace in St. John's. The pictures of bombed-out London, marked past by the censor. She kept everything. Diaries, dance cards, the torn-up photo of a lover. She kept the pieces. Newfoundland was a country when Brooks was born. Until 1949, it was a country, a failed country. We meet up with Charlie Tomlinson, actor-director. Brooks has taught me to say, Theatre worker. <laughs> so, so, he was a patriot of the place. I think the fact that his mother hated it was always a problem for him. And she did. She married a Newfoundlander. He was a Newfoundlander, yeah. I'm pretty sure he was an officer, Lewis. It's the war. Well, you come to Newfoundland, you, I, mean, I can only imagine what it, she must have thought she'd come to the end of the world. From London, even in the blackout, 40 to 45. Phyllis was not what she said she was. She was much lower class, and she was pretending to be of a level, and class was so important in those days. Chris typically records everything. In this iconic piece, Songs My Mother Taught Me, there are no holds barred furious private disputes, even his own therapy sessions. So, I guess the moral of the story is you got recruited in that family into the marriage instead of being able to be a kid in that family. Let me think about that for a minute. Why wouldn't you leave? Well, where'd I go? I, there were, I didn't have any other family. I mean, my mother always said that her family was dead. Which wasn't true, I learned in later life, but I, I mean, as a child, I didn't know. My father's family... Um, she was estranged from them. They, something had happened when I was a little kid, when she'd first um, stepped off the boat here. I, I don't really know what it was. When he was a child, Christmas was desperately awful. He hated Christmas because his mother, of course, was very maudlin about it and uh, missed her family and uh, couldn't let her husband and son know that she even had a family. It wasn't until after his mother died that he and his father found Christmas cards in the mail, and this is how he discovered that they had actually relatives in Britain. His mother would get drunk and um, just before Christmas dinner would storm off and not come back until the turkey was black. misrule. you got to get in the fridge. But in latter days, with the mummering, we resurrected Christmas. And this is a, a picture of, uh, of an, an early group of mummers. Chris is actually here in blackface, which was traditional for mummering at the time. I don't think it had to do with trying to pretend you were, you were black. <laughs> it, it was just a way of making yourself look like the devil. Recording. Here's the crowd of mummers we left last night, 
acting out their old winter solstice ritual in a St. John's living room. The mummers were an important part of the Canadian theatre culture, let alone Newfoundland. It's chaotic, it's the lord of misrule. The world turned upside down. You crash into people's houses, you do this play, you gotta get in the fridge. And it's Christmas and it's slightly anarchic. And indeed in Newfoundland, for a while there, it was in fact illegal. Uh, it hadn't been performed legally for about 50 years. Nicole Rousseau, she calls herself artistic animateur. The police phoned. <laughs> The, you know, the day before they uh, they were going to start doing the mummers play again and say, you know, you know, this is illegal. And Chris assured them that we're, you know, we're just going to our friends' houses and doing this for a bit of fun, which was not true. The hobby horse was the creature of anarchy and chaos. Brooks and I first really connected because I loved being the hobby horse. Well, the hobby horse could like come in and he would just smash everything up. I mean, sit on the laps of the women and they would all scream or some would shake. But what we would do is, is all get in a big car and drive around until we found a party. We'd knock on the door and say, any mummers allowed in? There is a cultural thing in Newfoundland. Like, if mummers knock on your door, you're not really supposed to not let them in. People of a more working-class background were much quicker to open their doors. A lot of the appeal for Chris was that sense of uh, breaking away from the strictly religious interpretation of Christmas to a little of a wilder kind of side, a little more of the old Celtic spirit, you know, uh, light triumphing over darkness. You don't do that in a nice way. You do that with a, with a sword in your hand. Theatre practice in Canada and Newfoundland was very colonial and we did not tell our own stories much. And so Christopher was at the front of an idea that our stories needed to be told. And in that case, they didn't have to have English accents. They weren't about dead kings and queens. They could be about fisher persons. They could be about elections, provincial politics. 2nd of March, there's a message from Chris who's located our Avignon house coordinates Aha, he writes, I see there's a puppet theater in the building. In a previous life, I was a puppeteer. Now, what can I tell you? Oh, puppet heads here. Punch and Judy puppet heads. And uh, he went across Newfoundland and actually drove across Canada with a Punch and Judy show. And uh, these are some of the, the puppet heads that uh, he had made. This one is Joey Smallwood the first premier of Newfoundland after Confederation. He figured that Punch and Judy was indeed a, a political show, really. A public nuisance. Like so many people have said, it's like you come into the hall and it's really like a rock star, right? Chris was very much the figurehead of 
all we're trying to do. This local rock star quickly transforms these anarchic Christmas mummers into the more organized mummers troupe. Chris, of course, was the person who led the Mummers Troop through their most active time uh, in the 70s. And the plays that they created were, I think, very much driven from his perspective on the importance of activism and community participation in theater creation. And if you look there, you can see a green building. That's the LSPU Hall. That's the building that Chris discovered and uh, the Mummers Troupe uh, uh, started rehearsing in. And uh, I think the first production they had there was uh, the East End Show. It was about uh, revitalization of the downtown. The Mummers Troupe created a play about downtown St. John's in the words of the people who live there. Chris Brooks is director of the Mummers Troop. He was asked why the play isn't obviously political. If we had, it would have been a play about, now listen folks, I'm telling you what I think you should do, you know, but we wanted Instead, instead of talking to people, we wanted to talk for people, I think. We wanted to find them saying things about themselves and about their neighborhood and their area. And uh, eventually, when the Longshoremen's Protective Union sold the hall, they sold it to Chris instead of to the, the Bank of Montreal. Bank of Montreal wanted to tear it down and build a parking lot. Mm-hmm. But the LSPU people did not want that to happen, and so they uh, they sold it to the Mummers Troop, and Chris personally guaranteed the mortgage. Okay, so we are in the LSPU Hall, and we're standing just in front of the wooden sign that uh, Chris gave us. It reads, Side Loaders Means Unemployment. Side loaders are uh, the mechanized version of the work that the longshoremen or the dock workers would do, and were still doing when uh, Chris and the, the Mummers Troop first rented the place. Then jobs were lost, and unemployment spreads pretty quickly around here. So, you know, side loaders means unemployment is a message with real impact. Guess who's moving in next door? It's us! <laughs> There was a cultural bureaucrat here. Chris has never admitted it, but we all know he did. This person was getting a prize up in Montreal somewhere, and Brooks dressed up as a clown and put a pie in his face. Well, not exactly. And Chris had arranged for this guy in Toronto who apparently was a specialist in pieing people. It was a service he offered. So, arranged, but not carried out by Mr. Brooks himself. His book is called A Public Nuisance. <laughs> he got given an honorary degree in Corner Book where they, um, where they had built a theatre school. And he couldn't help himself. He just told them, to their faces, that they hadn't done enough plays of and about Newfoundland. <laughs> he couldn't miss pass up an opportunity to disturb, 
educate, correct what offended him. He wanted to, to be able to make a statement about our arts practices here, that they were valuable, that they mattered, that they were important in a context where we were so occupied by like a British colonial mindset and that the only theatre that mattered was made in the British style for a more eminent social class. And promote our culture in that way was a big driver of the cultural renaissance that people are still talking about. Where are you getting the other $2,000? Just got back from ceiling where I made $2,000. Congratulations, Mr. Bucket. The subject, or issue really, is the annual seal hunt. They club seals, don't they? Looks at the issue from the point of view of the Newfoundlander. It's in favor of the hunt. Alan Fowler called it the most controversial Canadian play of the 1970s. Are you going to go inside and watch the show? Uh, I don't think so. Why not? Costs money. Why should I pay? I've already paid $14,000 in my taxes to throw this show on. Would you go in after this? pure propaganda. The sealing show, they club seals, don't they, was to play at the National Arts Centre. Somewhere around the opening of the hunt. We're looking at the issue objectively and intelligently and logically, that the hunt is carried on in a humane fashion, that the herd is not endangered, and that it's economically uh, essential to the livelihood of the Newfoundland fishermen. So they were doing performances for crowds of sealers, their most enthusiastic audience. Well, we've been studying the figures now for two years. It's proof positive the harp seal is going to be extinct. And I've been sealing for ten years, and I can tell you there's more seals out there today than there ever was. And, uh... NAC called and said, for your opening night, would you like to have a reception? You're such nice East Coast people. <laughs> you know, we'll do, how about a seafood reception? And, and Chris said, yeah, sure. And he said, oh, and by the way, we consider seal to be seafood. <laughs> so we would like seal meat to be served. Silence. <laughs> and they called back and said, why don't we just do a wine and cheese instead? And to which Chris was like, absolutely not. And we won't go. And... It ended up in the House of Commons. (laughs) It became another battleground of the ideology of both sides around the seal hunt. And eventually they relented and the seal meat was served in puff pastry and ultimately didn't really taste like seal at all. This is how we save the seals. It's not the way to do it. Are you telling me you're not willing to take a few stitches in your head to save 180,000 seals? Ignore him. All we need is one picture of him hitting you and we've won it all. Look, he's going to kill a seal! Chris's approach to theatre was always concerned with social justice and uh, his work in, in Newfoundland also had to do with that, enabling people to see what it was that they wanted and needed. His theatre company would go to the villages in Newfoundland, to the the outports, and make a play based on the interviews that the local people gave him. And then his theatre company would improvise a play around this and then reflect it back. And so he went to Nicaragua and, and the Latin America to study how it was they were doing that there. You're listening to Ideas and to a special program about the life and work of master documentary maker Chris Brooks. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, 
in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Chris Brooks influenced and inspired generations of radio producers, both here in Canada and abroad. He was internationally celebrated with countless awards, yet everything he did remained firmly rooted in his sense of place, a part of St. John's Newfoundland called The Battery. This documentary tribute by David Zane Myrowitz and Malgajata Zerve is called Non-Rechargeable Battery and resumes inside his home in the battery with his wife, Christina. The whole house is filled with memorabilia and things that, uh, they were touchstones for him. And here's, uh, a uh, sign from, uh, I'm not sure if it's El Salvador or Nicaragua. It says, Muerte al Imperialismo. He had a sign also of Ortega, but he took that one down. <laughs> yeah, he should have. <laughs> yes. He went to Nicaragua to repair his heart. And then he went back when he got the job with CBC so he wound up covering quite a bit of the war and the revolution. He covered stories in El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica. Recording. The war goes on. As I walked up the street from the hatmakers, six young men strolled past. Each carried an automatic rifle and a small, scruffy backpack. They were guerrillas passing through. One of them told me he was 12 years old. Seven years ago, when this war began, he was five. Same age as those two little girls in the refugee camp who began this documentary. Singing, soldier, soldier, don't beat me. I'm just a little girl, and I could fall down. For Sunday morning, I'm Chris Brooks, in Tenancingo, El Salvador. His relationship with the theatre here, community here, it was fractured very badly a long time ago. Was he without fault? No, no, no. He was not the always the easiest person. But it was a difficult time for him. He felt he was getting idle. I guess he must have been early 30s. And he did say, I felt I lost my community. I think he went to Nicaragua to repair his heart. His first trip to Nicaragua was for theater because of the revolution down there. The way that they had to, to spread word, each community would just make a play and go to the next community. Anyways, he then uh, started traveling with the Campesino Theater groups. I'm reading Chris's book on Nicaragua called Now We Know the Difference. Near the Honduras border in 1980, he writes... 
It's not hard for the hit-and-run squads of La Contra to slip across the border and ambush travelers. So why do these actors come here? Hell, why do I come here? And these were just very simple people, campesinos, uh, farmers. During the revolution, they would make a, a little play about how we need a school. We need to get a, a, a well dog. How are we going to get a well dog? And things like this. For all his life after the theatre, the radio, Christina, the battery radio, the house, there was a part of him that really wanted to change the world. When we would talk about Trump, it would get hot. <laughs> he was, truly was offended by things. That prison is Mariona, El Salvador's penitentiary for men. Journalists are not permitted to enter. Cameras and tape recorders are forbidden. But I was able to get into Mariona as a visitor and to smuggle out tape-recorded interviews. He uncovered a mass grave at one point. He discovered where they had had a massacre. I know that uh, he was always very dicey about uh, helicopters. At one point when he was in Nicaragua, no, I think it was El Salvador, the army helicopters came over and in a phalanx so that it was looking, looking like they were going to strafe the field where he was standing. So he would flinch sometimes when a helicopter went over our house. If you love Newfoundland, you go away for a while. I suspect that as he looked around at the world and at the efforts people were making to make the world better, the efforts through arts, perhaps just realized that uh, he could work the same at home. The needs were different, obviously, in a place like Newfoundland than they are, say, in Nicaragua or somewhere. And Christopher always said that he, he felt lucky to be coming from Newfoundland and going to places like Nicaragua because he had grown up in a place that, that didn't have indoor plumbing. Other journalists coming from Toronto would go there and, and uh, think, oh my goodness, you know, what, is, what sort of third world place is this? Mm. And uh, Christopher could relate to all of this because he came from a place that was quite similar. I think he felt that there was the same sort of hardiness and um, unwillingness to give up that, that he found in Newfoundlanders. This is his workstation here. Two monitors and uh, DAT machine and amplifier and uh, EQ and mixer and compression and, uh, and it's all run on this very old Apple computer. Oh goodness, there's the pre-Europa stuck on the wall there and uh, pre-Italia up here. And uh, he has, oh yes, here's the uh, National Radio Awards. If I could go back there, was the air empty? Recording. Are we on the air? Can you hear me? On the air. Can you hear me now? Can you hear anything? Yes. <laughs> and all these uh, um, things that he has posted up, things that, the quotes that meant things to him. 
Uh, a quote from Albert Einstein. The wireless telegraph is not difficult to understand. The ordinary telegraph is like a very long cat. You pull the tail in New York and it meows in Los Angeles. The wireless is the same, only without the cat. <laughs> How did he get into it? Your world. I think when he finished in Toronto doing journalism for BBC to CBC, I mean, CBC, a much maligned institution in Canada. When he finished that job and he came home, he started making those really world-class documentaries. <laughs> it kind of hits it out of the park. It's a little old-fashioned, I'm guessing, but you know what? It's very fucking good. Recording. If I could go back there, mm. was the air empty? No, the, the, the ether was completely empty before Marconi started. The place I grew up in, St. John's. The place he came to, later. It was a wooden city. What did it sound like? A city of wood, really. I only knew his name, but in this name was hidden the word master. Everyone was treating him like a master. This is Kasia Michalak, Polish radio documentary maker. I call him total radio maker, total radio man. He wanted to touch the essential nature of radio. He wanted to play with our imagination. We have a thing we like to do. We would drive up Signal Hill. It's a good place to do thinking up there. We liked going there. We selected as a site for our receiving station Signal Hill, a headland at the entrance to St. John's Harbour. It was a desolate scene, not a shrub or a tree, only a deserted military hospital in one room of which Mr. Marconi set up his apparatus. So you got a good view from Signal Hill yesterday? Was there a, was it clear? Oh, very clear, yeah. yeah. And they called it Signal Hill, not because of Marconi. They called it Signal Hill because that is where you would look to see the flags flying when there were people up there spotting the ships, and they would, uh, they would fly a flag to show you what ship was coming in. It is now my great privilege to introduce my distinguished chief, His Excellency, the Marchese Marconi. It was shortly after midday on December the 12th, 1901, that I placed a single earphone to my ear and started listening. The chief question was whether wireless waves would be stopped by the curvature of the Earth. The first and final answer to that question came at 12.30 when I heard... Listen to this, Kemp. Take the headphone. Can you hear anything? Can you hear? Yes, there it is. The letter S. Distinctly, Mr. Marconi. So the story goes. I've read Chris's essay called Are We on the Air? And it's very important excerpt from his essay for me. Marconi. A man giving radio his full attention. Does it give him the information? No, it engages his imagination so powerfully that he imagines the information. 
To me, this illustrates that radio excels not by delivering information, but by evoking the imagination. And he loved bells, so there's... Um, this is a, a schooner's bell. And then this one was uh, one from one of his goats on this goat's color, and then there's other bells. Hung up, anything that made a sound. And then there's an old um, Marconi machine there for, for keying in messages. Chris uh, went to Bologna, where Marconi was born. He was trying to be the ear of Marconi because the piazza in Bologna, Piazza Maggiore, was sounding in such a special way. If you are standing in one corner of the piazza and whisper, another person being 100 or 200 meters away can listen to it. Recording. Today's program is from contributor Chris Brooks in St. John's, Newfoundland. His documentary is called Turn It Off, Music to Drive You Crazy. When I was growing up, my parents said this drove them crazy. So the Little Richard. Meanwhile, what my parents had on their record player drove me round the bend. And Little Richard... The guy who used to drive my parents nuts? He doesn't sing about Miss Molly much anymore. He got religion, took a theology degree, and started singing gospel hymns. Now that drives me crazy. remember the day that I, I was getting the messages off the answering machine right here. And then, you know, it went beep, and then there would be a message, and then would beep, and another message, and there was beep, and I said, Hello, Chris, this is Les Paul. <laughs> and I thought, what, the Les Paul? And it was. He He's a legend uh, yeah. among guitarists. And he invented uh, multi-tracking. Something nobody in this world had. Sound on sound. Recording. Hey, is this thing plugged in? Oh, man. The wire. The wire. Can you hear anything? <laughs> I'm Les Paul. And so what happened is I says, Mary, pack everything up, we're leaving. Using one tape machine, I can make your voice into a glee club and my guitar into an orchestra. We had something that nobody in this world had. It was sound on sound. In this society, you don't talk about mentors very much in a way that really expresses like how close they are to you. Rebecca Nolan, 
a new generation radio maker. But yeah, he was my radio mentor. Chris taught me everything. The way that you can play with music and natural sound, it's almost like composing an opera around the voices. Sound on sound. 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 I learned how to ask questions in a way that gets your interviewee to feel comfortable. I remember he would have a recorder and it'd just be like over his shoulder, just casually. So the person knew they were being recorded, but the way he was standing, he was just a guy in your house that you were telling a story to. So, what brings you to the park today? Love, death, madness, panic, like Sam and Linda, Johnny and Iris, four characters obsessed with their little life dramas. Store-bought ambition. Of course, aren't we all obsessed with our little life dramas? I got really interested in sound walks, which Chris had been doing for, at that point, a couple years. I think he called them landscape documentaries. You'll bump into them, Sam and the others, here in the park. Sooner or later, one of them will show up and start whispering in your ear. So basically... You download an app on your phone, and there's a map on it, a very beautiful map, with all these dots on it. Your phone, thanks to its built-in GPS, knows exactly where they are and where you are, and it'll introduce you automatically. And each of these dots is a story, and you can only trigger those dots by walking through the place. You can choose to walk along any one of their storylines on the map, or you can just stroll about and see who turns up. Do you remember me? Park yourself on a bench and hear what they're doing right there where you are. I call Joe. I will have no friends left. Or you can walk on and find out what fate has in store for them further along the path. I thought we'd get to make love one last time. And so you'll be walking, say in the battery here, and then all of a sudden you'll hear a person in your ear, almost like a whisper, and they'll be telling you about that place that you're standing in, like, that house is my childhood house. Go ahead. Slip on your headphones, pop in your earbuds, and let our four characters... Oh, I was helping him do the GPS triggers because, you know, Chris had a bad leg and so he couldn't necessarily walk all of the sound walks to make sure everything was triggering okay. Yeah, the bad foot, an unexplained malady. It's been plaguing him for years. Okay, that cemetery, just the one headstone from what we have been told belonged to a family called the Antles. No one seems to know anything about it except that it was possibly a cemetery for the Antles. But that's all I know about it. That's it. John Antle, 1817. A successful planter with a wife and one child. As I am now, so must you be. Prepare to die and follow me. News from St. John's on March the 22nd. With a late-season snowstorm forecast for Friday here and the daffodils struggling to come up, we're dreaming of Avignon in great earnest. It's called Mea de Feta de Bacalao. I've never cooked it. It's my first time. So he was cooking? Yes, he was the cook. We had a joke that he was chef and I was sous chef. It always seemed to me that the secret of his genius and his success 
was that mixture of the engineer and the artist. And perhaps that's common, you know, maybe Leonardo or people like that, maybe that's a common sort of thing. But he had an engineer's mind. I mean, loved gadgets, loved uh, making things out of other things, repurposing, making things work. Chris and I had had it down to a science. Yeah. So, I will be back with the cheese. So, uh, put everything in well in the back. We just need to make sure that nothing is going to... Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's good. And now I'm closing. Okay, and uh, the switch is downstairs. So, in this narrow house on several floors with a winding staircase, engineer Chris Brooks constructs an old-time dumbwaiter to transport the dinner up from the kitchen to the dining room. So, up it goes. second floor. We have a painting there. This is Battery Road and in the corner there is our little boat. That was our old boat and she was called Nod and a Wink and the one I just um, sent to Petty Harbour was uh, Dewdrop. It's like a chapter ending in a way. Chris has this little Rodney called Dewdrop. He named it after Christina, because that was her nickname, and you're supposed to name your boat after your wife, he said. There was no one else who was rowing a Rodney. It's like a tiny 14-foot rowboat in St. John's Harbor that has these giant oil tankers and cruise ships and just monsters in the water, basically. And so you don't see these guys rowing these little boats anymore. It's like a a callback to what St. John's used to be. And so everyone knew if you saw a rowboat in St. John's Harbor, it was Chris Brooks going for a row. <laughs> when we chat online about recording him in May, the first thing Chris says is, you must record the scraping and repainting of the boat. Everyone from the battery will be there. I have so many lovely pictures of Chris rowing this. <laughs> Every year, the whole battery, the whole community here would all come and they'd all help Chris flip his boat, put it on the trailer and like send it off and it was kind of a tradition that would happen every year around this time um, and so the community came out to flip the boat one last time and to kind of see her off and Rebecca is going to take, Rebecca and Marshall are going to have the boat from now on <laughs> it was like a, a chapter ending in a way. Have a good launch, Christina. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you a lot. Tenth of April, Chris and Christina are finally heading to St. John's Airport on the first leg of their trip to the south of France. It definitely impacted him that last time I saw him before he was coming to your house. In my mind, there is cafes and there are streets in Avignon where you sit outside, you drink your espresso, and extremely beautiful girls walk past. Maybe there's some 
performance happening, you know? Christopher made sense in places like that. What that moustache was, I have no idea. Never understood it. Like, or his beret. On the way, Chris notices he's forgotten something back at the house. They turn the car around. He had his own personal mythology of himself, how he appeared in the world, riding the bike even though he couldn't walk. That's why it's so foolish. He rushed back from the airport to get his goddamn... Crutches. He forgot his crutches. But I get it. In Avignon, he would have them to get around, and then he could sit down and drink his coffee and with the girls and argue with politics with people, because he'd only just recently reconciled to being pushed around airports. I think I took you off your subject there. Tenth of April, twenty twenty-three, five thirty p.m. St. John's time zone. Hi, David. Bad news. Unfortunately, there's been an accident. Chris has fallen and hit his head. At hospital now. 11th of April, 2023. 3.46 a.m. Home. I am very sad to tell you that he died at 8.45. Recording. As long as you can hear it, as long as you can hear that sound, you're alive. It's when the sound stops. Like That's when you know you may have had it. Stepped off that shore called life to cross the vast gray ocean of forgetting to that far shore. You've been listening to a documentary called Non-Rechargeable Battery, a tribute to the master documentary maker Chris Brooks. It was written and directed by Malgajata Zerve and David Zane Myrowitz, with special thanks to Christina Smith. The sound engineer was Eva Olszewski. Selections from the radio works of Chris Brooks, Hark, The Annotated Jack, Songs My Mother Taught Me, Any Mummers Allowed? Little Girl in a White Dress, The Letter S, Turn It Off, Music to Drive You Crazy, The Wire, as well as the films Newfoundland, Nation or Notion, and You Know You're Downtown. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Austin Pomeroy. Nikola Lukšić is our senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.